Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to HPI. I am Dr. Cody Jackson, and I'll be your navigator through today's journey of history of present interview. Wilma's series at the crossroads where the interests of the people meet the people of interest. Wilma is the Western Regional Component of the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine. Wilma podcasts are a benefit for Wilma members to stay current on topics of interest to occupational and environmental medicine physicians and allies. The Wilma Education Committee members involved in planning this presentation and Dr. Sandrock have no relevant financial relationships to disclose and have no conflicts of interest. On today's podcast, we'll discuss updates to the COVID-19 pandemic and its interaction with public health with Dr. Christian Sandrock, an internist who specializes in critical care, infectious disease, and pulmonary disease. Welcome to the show, Christian. How's it going? Doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing okay, you know, just trying to uh, continue to work and I did a series of night shifts in the ICU this past weekend, and we saw it all anecdotal, of course, but certainly an uptick in the number of COVID cases hitting the wards in the ICU, which is probably the post-vaccine push. So um, a little depressing, but part of part of our job. Right. Yeah. Speaking of uh, depressing, COVID is such a heavy topic. So, you know, if I'm honest, uh, given the enormous negativity in the world. Uh, I'd like to have us share something positive in our lives with our listeners to, to kick things off. I'll uh, go ahead and say that, you know, with my, my pup Sierra, she's a rescue. She's about 10 years old and she's the one that's uh, kept me on my feet throughout the pandemic and kept me hiking our, the hills around us uh, on our twice a day mile or two walk. So I'm, I'm thankful for her. <laughs> yeah. How about yourself? Um, I would probably say that even though I'm going to be in the ICU over New Year's, not Christmas time, but over New Year's, um, I'm happy my two oldest girls are coming back from college, so I'll get to see them a little bit. So I'd say that's my positivity is I'll get to spend a little time with them. And uh, my one daughter's a really good violinist, so um, I kind of miss just having music practice in the house. So it's going to be nice to hear that. Oh, that sounds great. <laughs> so um, before we uh, discuss COVID-19 pandemic and its interaction with work, I wanted to get into the new variant that's out there, the Omicron. And I was wondering if you could just share a couple quick facts uh, about the Omicron variant to help our providers fight against it and help their patients. Yeah, so, um, you know, obviously there's a lot we're still learning about this new Omicron variant. And um, what it appears is how it's different from, you know, whether it's mu, lambda, delta, which has been probably our, you know, most prolific to date is, um, you know, there's obviously some changes in the spike protein. One of the changes is um, in sort of the attachment area where it attaches to the ACE inhibitor that allows for more ready, readily ready attachment or readily uh, binding. And, you know, you hear this phrase in the media that it's got some similarities to the cold coronaviruses. So, you know, obviously there's a similarity between the alpha and beta coronaviruses that allow for the common cold ones to have this increased binding. And when you get then get to the SARS and MERS class of um, coronaviruses, that sort of disappeared. Uh, but this one seems to have picked some of that up. So as a result, again, depending what data you look at, but there's a preliminary uh, unpeer-reviewed study from the UK, which shows that it's probably about two and a half to three and a half times more infectious than uh, what we saw with Delta. 
So that's number one. Um, and I think number two is that we're seeing some increased vaccine failure rates. So some of the data, and most of this data, again, is not done in populations um, in real world studies. So it's mostly in lab studies where you look at, um, you know, T and B cells that have been exposed to um, two Pfizer vaccines, for example, it appears that they're about 32% of the time they're able to amount an immune response that would be protective. Again, this is all done in the lab. But so that's not great numbers. So, you know, for those people who haven't had their boosters, um, you know, that's going to be a low level of protectivity. However, after your booster, I mean, for in those that have gotten boosters in the last few months, when you look at their B and T cell response, it's about 75% protective. So that's why you see a lot of the literature coming out saying that, hey, you know, with these Omicron variant, that at least getting some protectivity for your B and T cell immune response and waking him up with a booster is probably the direction, you know, we need to go. And that's why you're seeing those phrases, we can booster our way out of, you know, this variant and all those sort of things. So that's probably the main thing. And we could talk about severity, which there's a little bit of data, at least starting now. So, or I can talk about it now too, which is good. <laughs> I, I don't want to talk forever. See, this is like, usually when I'm at dinner, my kids tell me to shut up. So I don't want to keep going, but yeah, so yeah, there is. We love little, it here. Yeah, no, right. There's a little bit of, um, you know, a little bit of instruction on severity. That's actually probably still, the jury's still out, but it looks like obviously it's infectivity is up. It's severity may be down. And certainly um, we don't have the data that say that if you're vaccinated and you, um, you know, obviously uh, get infected with this variant, is your, the protection from severe disease still going to be there? You know, our hunch is probably, and that probably this is better at evading the immune system initially and causing initial infection. But as far as severe infection, it's probably not quite as severe. That's what the preliminary data is suggesting. However, you know, if you look at this from a population perspective. So say we have a lot of vaccinated people, many who haven't had their boosters get infected. Yeah, there's more mild disease, but that's going to amplify the virus across the population. That means more unvaccinated people who are refusing to be vaccinated will get this variant. So we may see less severe disease in general, but the volume of patients who are infected may be relatively high. So to say we're going to have another wave is probably really unfortunately plausible. And at least the UK data where they have the variant appears to have taken off sooner, it is really becoming one of the more predominant variants um, in the UK very quickly. If you look at some of the CDC suggestions and modeling, it will probably be the most predominant variant we have in the United States within a few weeks to, to a month max. But probably, you know, by the end of the year, this may be the most predominant variant we, we see. I actually don't know, at least here in California, where, where I live, I don't know what percent of the variants were uh, or what percent of the positive tests we isolate are that variant. But, you know, obviously we're seeing a low level right now, but that's a matter of time before it's a higher level. Right. And speaking about California, we just started our indoor mask mandate again. Yeah, exactly. Which is and same and same with New York and same with other places. Um, this is going to probably upend uh, functioning to a degree, and it's deja vu all over again, right? So right, yeah. This time we're trying to find a, a balance between working with the the virus in our community versus trying to avoid it altogether. And so tying it back into work, I always felt that us as healthcare providers really need to be selfish in, in the fact that, you know, we need to take care of ourselves before we can really take care of others. And I, I think for the most part, I would say that, you know, our, our colleagues are big on immunization and, and getting that taken care of. Uh, but the big ticket item for me as a naval flight surgeon uh, in the past, especially for the younger people who took a lot of pride and felt, you know, invincible that they just felt, you know what, I don't need it. I'm going to be 
okay. And it really took a concerted effort to educate them that, you know, the best thing that they could do for their team or their squadron is to make sure that they're healthy and that they're safe first before they do anything else. So I was wondering if maybe you could walk us through some of the work stressors that uh, healthcare workers have been experiencing and perhaps compare their experience to grocery clerks, uh, police and (laughs) firefighters. I actually don't even know if a, you know, I've never was a grocery clerk and got the firefighters, they would eliminate me from their ranks immediately if I started. So the one thing that we're sort of seeing, which is, you know, the healthcare side is obviously this longevity, just that, you know, we constantly are having cases and that there's a constant level of death associated with it. Now, obviously there's ebbs and flows. And if we look nationally, you know, in in the United States, you're seeing again in the Northern states, whether it's Michigan or Minnesota, that they're on the edge and they're seeing death that's unprecedented before. So obviously we have ebbs and flows, but I think this just constant, you know, um, illness and death is one thing. And it just, it really does wear on you. And, you know, even though I'm in the world of critical care and we have people dying every day, there is just a level of persistence behind it that is challenging from a mental health perspective. And I think really exhausting for a lot of us no matter how um, heartless you are as an individual. And I was raised in New Jersey, you know, they teach you to be pretty tough um, in general and relatively heartless part of the, <laughs> it's, it's the curriculum in the second grade in New Jersey, you know, you're going to toughen up and, you know, yeah. be heartless, um, particularly if you're in Catholic school. You know, one of the things is, you know, no matter how heartless you are, it's just, it is just tough to see it over and over again. And I think many of us can't sort of rationalize or compartmentalize uh, these deaths. And I think that's wearing number one. Number two is it's just the constant number of cases and the stress around it. Uh, Number three, unfortunately, is a lot of the political and or social um, cultural debates that have lined the pandemic, you know, so clearly, if you're pro vaccine or anti vaccine, or if you believe in one form of medication treatment or another, it puts you in political camps. But the end result is that there's a level of divisiveness that still can exist in a world of healthcare when we really didn't have that before. So you know, an example is you might have a patient, they come in, they maybe want ivermectin, Maybe the treatment team doesn't believe in ivermectin and reviewed the data from the studies, says it's not indicated, doesn't want it. You know, even with that in the background, you're going to have other healthcare workers sort of advocating for this patient to get ivermectin because they maybe believe uh, in certain political views or uh, it's just it gets exhausting. You know, that it's just you know, to have your job questioned and to have to your decisions constantly questioned all the time is fine. But if it's questioned not based on science, that's where it's the hardest. Like you're bringing something that right. just doesn't make sense from a scientific standpoint. It gets tired. It gets tired. So I think from our standpoint, it's mul- multiple. Um, none of us like wearing a mask, but I think we've gotten used to it. So, you know, when I did my night shift, I'm wearing a mask almost constantly for about 16 hours. I mean, it, you know, it's kind of ironic that I watch people complain about wearing it on an airplane for an hour. And I'm like, just wore one straight. I have like little ulcerations behind my ears after a while. And it's just kind of the way it is. So I think that's part of it. I think, you know, the one thing I would say that is similar to probably what grocery clerks have gone through, but haven't gone through in the past, you know, but we haven't gone through in the past is just a level of nastiness. You know, if you, I think if you work in a storefront and you're, you're forward facing to the public as part of that, your sales, you know, like for example, working at Safeway, you know, I think even before the pandemic, you just had people who were not nice to you and they were mean to you. And we had it a little bit in healthcare, but generally in healthcare, we were sheltered from that rudeness society-wise. And now we see that, right? So again, it's not unusual for us to get death threats and threatening messages and 
threats of lawsuits on a daily basis, which it didn't happen um, at this level before. It happened a little bit, but not at this level. So maybe there's a similarity there. Um, the difference, and you know, they have a different issue too. They have, have supply chain issues, which will put them at stress, which we are only, I wish we had a patient supply chain issue. That would be great if they disappeared and didn't come, but we don't really have that. And we've been lucky enough that most of our supply chain has been reasonable with, with the resources we need other than just having beds and bed availability. Um, and then for firefighters, that part, I don't necessarily know. They always have a pretty stressful job with multiple days. I just occasionally would look and, you know, we have, a, I have a friend who's a firefighter and he'll do a couple days on and a couple days off. And, you know, for me, it feels like I do a couple days in the nights, but then I'm here during the days to having meetings and stuff. It feels like it's never quite off. And uh, nice. it would be nice to have more shift work, which I think a lot of us would like in healthcare. But anyway, that's about the only thoughts I'd have at the moment. Not that they're high functioning thoughts, but that's mainly it. Yeah, I thought you were with the, the nastiness. I thought you were going to go with that. Um, you know, in, in medicine, there's a lot of dirty stuff that goes on. And, uh, you know, I think in the stores, you know, there, there can be some dirtiness with germs and whatnot, you know, oh. that people, you know, are touching and, and not cleaning up after themselves or blow their nose or whatnot, you know. And so. oh, yeah. Well, I will say, I mean, I, I expected not to, this is not dogging my own hospital. You just know how, how unfortunately, how contaminated healthcare facilities are. I think of the Safeway is probably a hell of a lot cleaner than our hospital yeah. <laughs> to a degree. You know, when I see some of the stuff that um, the patients that come in and all this. Oh, stuff, right. Yeah. 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 I think great. also the through medicine, as you grow up through it, you do a lot of compartmentalizing and you're, you build up those uh, mental health structures to, you know, to protect yourself. And I think ours are much more robust in the healthcare field because we deal with more severe issues, whereas a grocery clerk may not have had that training. And so just being out in the public, not knowing who has what, or if they can catch it or not knowing, you know, having a sick family member at home and knowing that, you know, they could give it to their family member yet not knowing exactly how to protect them. I think that provides um, a huge uh, mental health impact to them. Yeah. Just being on the front lines, I consider them, you know, as like, I don't know where I would get my food if they weren't there, you know? <laughs> oh yeah, no, I, I mean, it's sort of, it's interesting this pandemic has really recirculated, you know, the idea of essential workers, you know, and obviously well, all of us probably right. have a different definition of what an essential worker is. So, um, you know, whoever is responsible for our coffee supply chain, um, I think is definitely an essential, essential worker. Cause if I didn't have that on a more regular basis, I'd really not be doing well. Um, you right. Know, yeah. I think know, that's a lot of healthcare, huh? Starbucks <laughs> or Pete's or our temple locally or whatever it might be. It's a, uh, you know, um, it's, it's all good. You know, my parents are from Switzerland and the Swiss, they're a funny, funny people, but they have a, they have a really great stockpile of coffee and chocolate for all their population, you know, should, should all their borders close and they have to hole up in the mountains and the Alps, they have a really quite a good supply of chocolate and coffee and used to think that the Swiss are just a little crazy and paranoid and now they might be onto something. <laughs> so, I know, especially in the mountains there, they could keep it for a long while, huh? <laughs> So as a reminder to our listeners throughout the interview, I'm going to throw in some fun questions to get to know you better. Does that still work? Oh, not a problem. Yeah. We'd like to know something that almost nobody, but maybe close friends and family would ever know about you. Oh, dear Lord. That's a good thing. And being from New Jersey, you wear everything on your sleeves. So that's a tricky one. Um, well, I can't see your sleeves now. So maybe it yeah, doesn't yeah. have to be so deep. <laughs> exactly. You tend to be blunt and nothing's really hidden, which is uh, always a bit challenging. <laughs> 
now yeah see now some something that they only know that my wife would otherwise know i think probably is that i like sleep a heck of a lot more than i let on so <laughs> she okay. knows that she always looks at me and she goes no he likes to sleep you know um most people are like oh he's doing another night shift he's happy to be up all night and she's like no he's at home complaining and bitching <laughs> so i think that's probably it you know the forward facing side i might not complain about my lack of sleep as much as i probably really desire it so that and this may be still on the tip of my mind since i did a few night shifts but that mainly that might that might be it yeah yeah i think that probably uh does well for your travels because our next question goes on a little bit of a Nordic detour. And so I'd like to know how you ended up at Lund. Ah, uh, yeah. Always a good question. So yeah, with, <laughs> without a uh, long, long story short, they actually have an international master's in public health. And at the time um, I was sort of finishing up my fellowship training. I wanted to get a master's in public health. I thought it would be a really you know good idea. So I applied obviously to Berkeley and UC Davis had a fledgling pro program at the time. It was just starting. And um, it's really interesting if you're a staff member at one of the UCs, so say you're a nurse and you have a bachelor's in nursing and you want to get a master's in nursing. Actually, UC does a really good job of supporting a chunk of that tuition, get it covered. So I thought that would work for me, but I was hired into an early faculty position. So if you're already a faculty member and you want to go back and get a master's in that degree, they won't pay for you. They'll pay for staff members. They don't pay for faculty, which again, makes some sense. So, um, you know, I looked at the tuition for Berkeley and I thought, oh, that's not terrible, but do I want to pay that out of my own pocket? And then at the time they had a World Health Organization sponsored program up at Lund and they not only let, you know, and this is a Swedish school, so they like to have a certain amount of diversity. So the Swedish government not only accepted me tuition free, but gave me money to fly over there um, and do it free. So I thought, well, that Perfect. sounds a lot better. So um, that's how it ended. And I was, um, there were, there was, I was the only North, uh, there was one other guy, he was Swedish descent, but was living in Texas at the time. But I was the only representative from North America. We had a couple people from South America, and then obviously a bunch from uh, Middle East, Asia, Australia, and then some uh, Nordic people. About half of the people were from Denmark and Sweden, and the other half okay. were worldwide. So it was just more of an international program, focused a lot on maternal child health and, uh, and you know, NGO-based uh, work which was fine. I was mostly doing standard public health in the US. So uh, for me, I just needed the master's in public health structure. This was a lot more community intervention and NGO based, which was stuff I didn't know, which was, uh, which was great to learn. Right. Yeah. So I'm actually half Swedish myself. Oh, and, okay. yeah. yeah. <laughs> which, nice. which is why it piqued my, my interest. Yeah. Uh, my family's mainly in, in Gothenburg yeah. and Lund is near the big Swedish city of Malmö. Uh -huh. which is connected to Copenhagen, which yep. is where my cousin lives there. So I've, I've been around that, that area quite a bit. And I'm just interested to know, um, where did you explore when you were uh, in that neck of the woods? Yeah, so actually, I Copenhagen is probably my favorite city in the world. Honestly, it's a great city. But it, we were part of the medical school and the teaching hospital, the master's in public health. And that actually was in Malmo. So I actually didn't live in Lund, which, you know, is 30 minutes away and is a beautiful campus in a gorgeous city, uh, gorgeous town. But we were actually in Malmo and we were in the part of town that was a little bit rougher where the big academic teaching hospital is. So so that was really, really great. So mostly I explored Malmo and then, you know, within half an hour, you're in Copenhagen, right. traveling on the train and the, under the Orisund. And it was really nice uh, to go there. So a lot of Copenhagen um, and then up the coast 
you know, of both sides in the, in the Orison there. So we'd go up into Helsingborg, Helsingor, uh, you know, and along those areas. Helsingor is well known because that's Hamlet's castle. So that's in Denmark there. And it's up faces opposite another castle in Sweden. So mostly those areas, which is great, but the um, general, you know, way of living, Nordic way of living, which, you know, focuses on happiness and that, that, which is now as we go into winter, you know, that Hugge where it's, things are cozy and nice and well lit. Um, it's just kind of a nice way of living. To me, that translates into a nice fire, a good movie, and some whiskey. But, uh, you know, uh, for my <laughs> wife, nice. it's, more, it's more candles and, you know, really nice things bought at Ikea, right? So, <laughs> it's right. <all> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, Copenhagen is also the home to the Little Mermaid uh, from uh, Hans Christian Andersen. Yep. Wrote that one, right? Yeah. That's right. Which, she, which she, if you do go see it, it's profoundly disappointing is this like little three foot statue, which everybody goes, yes. you know, like, oh, that's it. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Christian. It's been a pleasure getting to know your HPI. Until next time, everyone, please stay safe, stay healthy.